Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, if you would take your imagination and go with me to a church gathering in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago. We're not sure what exactly the venue might have been, perhaps a large home, perhaps there were several gatherings in several large homes, but the congregation has gathered together and you've received word that there's a new letter from the Apostle Paul that will be read as part of worship. Paul's an apostle, so he speaks for God. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in the church at Corinth, and so you're excited to hear about what God will be saying to the church from God's Apostle Paul. That's going to be part of the worship service, and so you're excited. So you gather together as part of the body of Christ, the church at Corinth, and here you are sitting and waiting for the Word of God that we now know as 1 Corinthians. You're part of the congregation. Of course, Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown, they don't speak to one another because over the course of the last few weeks, they found that their favorite teacher had a small different take on how they approached practical Christian living. And so one follows one teacher, one follows another, and they don't really have anything to do with one another anymore. Mr. Blanchard is there. He's sitting next to his former mother-in-law, who's now his mistress, and doing so with a great deal of pride. Mr. Jones and Miss. Mrs. Johnson recently sued each other because they couldn't get along in their neighborhood. They were members of the HOA and couldn't get along. <laughs> Mr. Johnson has been pushing his unmarried daughter into a pagan marriage because he was tired of supporting her and didn't want an old maid in his family. And so he was ignoring the idea of marrying in the Lord. He was encouraging her to marry pagans. Mr. and Mrs. Peterson they're a bit hungover this morning because they attended a raucous party at a pagan temple the night before. Several wealthy members were prepared for that afternoon's potluck, but they were guarding their food because they knew that there were others who attended church who were very hungry, and they brought their food for just themselves. Just before Paul's letter is read, in that very service, there had been chaos as various members of the church were jumping up trying to practice so-called spiritual gifts. And there was a chaotic time of worship. And some in the church were even questioning fundamental doctrines, especially the resurrection of Jesus. They were saying things like, this is not really philosophically sustainable that Jesus has come back in his human body and resurrected from the dead. That's the church at Corinth who heard these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the church at Corinth. Saints 
called to be sanctified, called by God's grace into fellowship with God's Son, blessed by God's grace. You know, last week we were warned by Pastor Dave that the Corinth church is more like us than not like us. At Calvary Baptist, we don't want to hear that. But that's the way it is. The book of 1 Corinthians is a largely neglected book. It has so much practical instruction for us, though. Did you know it's the longest letter that Paul wrote? And it has within it, on nearly every page, in every passage, it's got a practical application for churches just like ours. If you're part of our church, the message is for you. If you're part of another faithful church, the message is for you and your church. If you're not part of a church, you need to be. And you might hear a message like this and say, well, why would I want to be part of a church? Because this is God's glorious plan. He has called us into fellowship with His Son and with one another. So this book is very practical. And I think that there are two very basic ways that we can understand the practicality and the application of 1 Corinthians. The first is this. It is very easy for us these days to despair of our culture and surroundings. In our day of being connected through social media, through seeing immediate news, it's so easy for us to look around at the decisions that our leaders make, the, the entertainment that is foisted upon us, the, the way that, that individuals in our culture make decisions, and we become, my wife and I have a phrase, we become tongue cluckers. We say, we're so much better than them. And we become sometimes overwhelmed. We, 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 we become discouraged. If you also, if you pay attention on social media, it's a fairly common trope now, the idea that who would want to live in California? You see that pretty regularly. Well, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and as Dave told us last week, if you know anything about the city of Corinth, you would ask the same question. Who would want to move their family to Corinth? But many people did. And there's a need for a church there. And whether it's the truth that we're Corinthians or we're Californians, God has us here. He has us here for a purpose. So I'm not looking to sell out and move to Tennessee where I can hunker down on a ranch and get away from Newsom. (laughs) Because there's a missional purpose to our being right where God has planted us. He wants us to make a difference right here. And the book of 1 Corinthians can remind us of that because Corinth was not greatly different than California. But broader than just that missional concern and the the concern about the culture, there's also the reality that it's very easy often for us to despair about the church. Churches can just be messed up places because they're filled with messed up people. And if you're here and you've never been disappointed or hurt by a church, you are a rare person, first of all, and buckle your seatbelt because sooner or later it's liable to happen. That's the nature of the church. But God's faithfulness is in play. He, he, you need to remember always His faithfulness to His people Israel. Now Israel is not the church, the church is not Israel, but the way that God dealt with Israel is a template for the way He deals with His church. And the way he loved Israel was he loved them endlessly. He loved them faithfully. He forgave them repeatedly. 
And this is the hope that we have for the church. I hope that we're better than Israel in the book of Judges. Amen? But whether we are or not, one of the things we find in Corinthians is that we are faithless. God is what? Faithful. That's one of the things Corinthians tells us. And so what we're left with is a message, really, I think, of challenge, but it's also great encouragement. Because here's what we see in verse 4 especially. The grace of God the Father has been given in Jesus Christ. Paul is, is revealing his pastor's heart. And in verse 4 he talks about how he prays. And he says that he gives thanks to his God always for the Corinthians. And why does he do that? What, what's the basis of his thanks? Because they've experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ. They've experienced God's grace. And he goes on to talk about all of these qualities that we're going to see this morning, the evidences of God's grace. And if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, and you're going to hear us say that regularly over the next few weeks because we're just getting into the study, but it's, it's a book with all kinds of ugly issues. And so if you know the book, you're, you're, you're thinking, he starts on such a positive note. Pastor Dave reminded us of this last week. These are saints. They're called of God. They're part of the universal church as well as the church with one another. Is Paul just being, is he just being ironic? I mean, is he sarcastic in all of this? Is it possible he's, he's just merely being courteous? Some have suggested that, that he's overplaying the positive aspect in order to get them to listen to them, and then he's going to stick the knife in and twist it. Is that what he's doing here? No. What Paul does in our text, both last week as we saw and this week, and you'll find it show up at other times in the book of 1 Corinthians in this letter, is he's reminding the church of the glorious gospel of grace. You are messed up. And that's the kind of people God loves to save. You are faithless, but God is faithful. And it's never an excuse for us to continue in faithlessness. Otherwise, there'd be no point in the letter. But it's just a reminder, when you think you've gone too far, when you think there's no hope, when you think that God is through with you, that as it were, God would be washing his hands of you, never believe that. Because we have here the grace of God. Now, grace is one of those Sunday school words, right? And we think we know what it means because we use it so often. But what does grace mean? Grace is help that is undeserved. And when it comes from God, it is supernatural help that is undeserved. So nobody can claim grace on their own merit. The very definition of grace is that it comes unmerited. It comes, it's God's favor to people who can't claim his favor, but they receive it anyway. This is what Paul is saying. Look at the grace of God to you, Corinthians. And then he goes on through the rest of the letter, and you say, those are people who never could deserve the grace of God. And the response to that is, yeah, you've got it. Because nobody deserves the grace of God. It's the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And one of the things we'll find is that whatever we have, whatever we do, whatever we hope for, it is grounded not in ourselves, but it's grounded in the grace of God. And that's another way to describe what we call the gospel, the good news that God loves us through Jesus Christ. So when we think of a church, whether we're thinking of the church in Corinth or whether we're think, thinking of Calvary Baptist in Santa Barbara, Let's look at what this grace of God given in Jesus Christ, let's look at what that looks like. 
And I'll show you five things this morning, and we'll go through them quickly. Don't worry. But look at verse 5 to begin with. The first thing you see is that the grace of God given to a church looks like God-given equipping. God has equipped the church. He has given us what we need. In verse 5, look at it again. It says that in every way, this is the grace of God. This is what it looks like. This is the reason Paul says, I'm thankful for God's grace to you, church at Corinth, because in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, on a purely secular level, speech and knowledge was very important to Corinth and to Greek, to Greece in general. I learned this week that the Isthmian Games, which were similar to the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games that happened there near Corinth in the ancient world, they not only were athletic, but they had speech competitions. The best people who could speak, uh, uh, the, the contestants would speak extemporaneously and they would receive prizes. Knowledge and speech were highly valued, and this is going to circle back around in the book later on. But what, the first thing that Paul says when he describes the way that God has equipped the church is that you are equipped in all speech. Notice the language again. In every way, you are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. This is not so much the spiritual gifts. We'll circle around to those spiritual gifts later. We'll circle back to them. But this is basically the ability to speak about God because you know about God. And the implication is that's God's grace. What do you know about God? I mean, what can you say with confidence about God? What have you taught your children? What do you try to teach your grandchildren about God? You recognize the ability to do so is all a gift of God's grace? This is the way God has equipped you to deal with life. This is the way that through the gospel, through the word of God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, we're able to present an entirely different reality from the world in which we live. And that equipping, all speech and all knowledge, it's the equipping that comes from God through the Holy Spirit. And so we are able to speak of God. We are able to know of God. And what grace this is to know that we are equipped to be what God has called us to be. Yes, this church, with all of our history, with all of our weaknesses, with all of the challenges of ministering in a community like ours, God knows this church just like he knew the church at Corinth, and he has equipped us for the purposes that he's called us to engage. That's what God's grace looks like to a church like ours, God-given equipping. Also, if you look at verse 6, there's God-given doctrine or God-given truth. In verse 6, Paul says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, don't run over those words too quickly. The testimony about Christ is basically the doctrine of who Jesus was and is and what Jesus did and continues to do and promises to do in the future. In fact, the truth is, all of Christian doctrine, it centers around the work and person of Jesus Christ. And the testimony about Christ was what they had received by the grace of God. These were pagan Greeks. Some of them perhaps were Jews who had only known the God of Israel and didn't recognize that God the God of Israel had sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be redeemer. But now they had come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, Jews and Greeks together. And the truth is they would not have had the testimony of Jesus without God's grace. But the testimony of Jesus changes everything. 
And therefore, there is truth that we can proclaim. There is doctrine. And evidently, the implication is the, book, the church at Corinth had their doctrine down pretty well. There are doctrinal issues later in the book about the resurrection, but generally, they were evidently a doctrinally healthy church because it says that in every way, you've been enriched. And then in verse 6, that the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you. This church had its doctrine down. And what grace it is. What grace it is that churches like ours can have access to the Word of God, that churches like ours can have access to God's truth, to doctrine. And don't be afraid of that word. Don't be afraid of the concept of theology, which is just the truth about God, organized. These are gifts of God's grace amid all the confusion and philosophies. Because where else will we go? Have you figured out that Google is not really the source for ultimate truth? You've recognized that the political system that we're burdened or blessed with, I suppose, depending on your position, it's not the source of ultimate truth. There may be good and, and appropriate blessings in all of that. It's not that we reject all of these things, but the reality is, as far as ultimate truth is concerned, it's the Word of God. It's the testimony of Jesus. That's our hope. That's where we rest. God-given doctrine. And it's not a question of, of our pride that we've got it all figured out because we find that we still struggle. We, we, we still seek to understand with a full understanding. But don't let that reality distract you from the truth that the essence of the gospel, the essence of the message of Jesus Christ is really quite basic and quite clear. And it is to either be believed or rejected. We have God-given doctrine. What grace that is. We also, in verse 7, we have God-given sufficiency. Look at this stunning claim in verse 7. So that, church at Corinth, you are not lacking in any gift. And here you begin the discussion of what we call spiritual gifts, grace gifts. And what we're going to find is that the gifts that God gives the church, they are a wonderful glory, but they're also a peril. They are a peril to the church. They are dangerous if they are misused. But this church, all the problems that are later addressed, this church was rich in gifts. It had no lacking, and therefore there was a God-given sufficiency. A God-given sufficiency. Everything they had had been provided. They lacked nothing in giftedness. But you have to note, I have to just stop here and say that the gifts alone were not preservative. Just to say, look at all the gifts we've got. It did little good for the church. Because I've already told you the spiritual state of the church. This same church that has all of these moral and functional and relational and systemic and societal problems that had infected the church, this same church, when God describes the church, it says you have every gift that you need. You're lacking nothing. At the very least, do you know what that means? We can never blame our problems on God. He's given us everything we need. He, he, he is in the process of providing all that we need now, I look at Calvary Baptist Church, and there's a whole lot of things that I think we need. We need, sooner or later, a brand new roof. You're supposed to laugh at that, but we, we need a brand new roof, not just because of the rain. 
We need new landscaping everywhere. We need to fix up our parking. We need younger families. We need a, a better technology here and there. A whole lot of things we need. But what this text says is God has his hand on churches that are faithful, that are rooted in the word of God. And what we have is sufficient to move forward to accomplish his purposes. One of the great challenges is we're always looking for the greener grass when God essentially, if I could colloquialize what is being said here, God basically says, I've made your grass really green where, right where you are. Glorify me in it. Serve one another right there. Move forward with the gifts that you're given because there's a God-given sufficiency in all of this. And evidently they were boasting in their gifts, but Paul wants to point them to the source of their gifts, the one who had given the gifts these gifts, these grace gifts that we'll talk about in a few months, they were necessary for the church to be the church. And there's great danger in the matter of spiritual gifts. If I can put it very simply, there are two ditches when you come to spiritual gifts. The first ditch is their abuse and distortion. And no one can deny that that was happening in Corinth and it's happening today. The abuse and distortion of so-called spiritual gifts. But you know the other ditch is to neglect and ignore the spiritual gifts. Because God has given us everything we need in sufficiency. What grace this is. That God has given Calvary Baptist sufficient gifts to serve Him and to serve one another. The question is, what are we doing with it? God-given equipping, God-given doctrine, God-given sufficiency. At the end of verse 7, you also find a God-given stability Notice verse 7b, it says, As you wait for the revealing, the idea of revealing is the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is easy for us, right? Because we just finished studying the book of Revelation, where God reveals what will happen at the end of time. Finally, remember how often we said that? When you read Revelation and you read in faith, you say, finally, finally. He comes to save. He comes to judge. He comes to set all things right. He comes to make all things new. But we're waiting for that. The church at Corinth, 2,000 years ago, they were waiting. We continue to wait. And this expectation, one author said it this way, this expectation is likely the highest posture for the Christian. The highest posture is to be waiting on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because sooner or later, we hope it's sooner, but the Corinthians were told to expect that, and it was later with them. But we say with confidence, sooner or later, Jesus will return and make all things new. And do you remember what we said? What we find here, as living as the church in our circumstances, we look back to the reality of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and that grounds us in history. That grounds us in space and time. God sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. He was a perfect sacrifice, and we find in Him our forgiveness. That grounds us. It binds us. It gives us stability. But then to the future we look, and we have these promises that one day Jesus will come back and make all things new, and we are grounded in those things in the future. And being grounded there and being grounded in the past tethers us with security and gives us stability. So we have this God-given stability as we wait for Jesus to come back. And Paul said the Corinthian church had that, that they were waiting for the revelation 
the revealing, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I push that metaphor just a little bit further? Because the truth is, we're waiting for Jesus to be revealed, and that's a future promise. That's eschatology. That's end times. But there's also a sense, stay with me for just a moment, there's a sense in which Jesus is being revealed or unveiled now. And you say, where? Because what we're going to find is that the church is called the body of Christ. So he's no longer physically in the world, but it's as though God says, you want to know what my son looks like? Go look at the body of Christ. And where do we find that? We don't find it on the internet. We don't find it on social media. We find it in faithful gatherings of the local congregation. And so there at least is some hint here that even though we're waiting for the unveiling of Jesus Christ, we find later in the book that there's a sense in which Jesus unveils himself still today, but he does it through regular, ordinary people like you and me. Now, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but if you took the time to look at the people around you, you think, they don't really look like Jesus. But we are the body of Christ. This is God's glorious grace. And this gives us a sense of stability as we know who we are. We know what we're rooted in in the past. We know what we're waiting on in the future. And this tethers us to one another. It tethers us to history. It tethers us to the future based on the authority of God's Word. And that gives stability. And what grace that is. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a chaotic world. There's chaos everywhere. There's instability everywhere. We have stability. And then finally, in verse 8, there's this God-given assurance. What a promise this is. Look at verse 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, back in verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's assurance, that we will make it. Now, you read that word, those words. Look at them again with me, verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reference again to the return. But when he returns and things all are made right, we will be at that day guiltless. Now, we think about this and we read this and we know in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, all of the ways we aren't guiltless. As our friend John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But there's an assurance here because we are not kept by ourselves or by our own efforts. We are kept by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which we, we need to understand this because when we forget this, we miss the entire burden of this letter. Because the entire burden of the letter is that their practice didn't reflect their position. When people forget their position, then they don't live out their practice. They, they don't practice the way, they don't live their lives. Their behavior doesn't match their status. And the status we have as forgiven believers in Jesus Christ is God will bring us through and one day we will be presented guiltless in His presence. And that reality should inform and inflame our eagerness to live faithful lives today because we have this assurance. Who is the one who sustains us? 
There's a sense in which we talk about the perseverance of the saints, but this is really the perseverance of the Savior. It is Jesus who sustains you. We know this. We should know it. We sang it this morning. "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." This is God-given assurance. And what grace this is, that we have security, that we have eternal assurance, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. Now, in all of this, this grace that shows up in the church, the grace that is the God-given equipping and doctrine and sufficiency and stability and assurance, the Corinth church had it, but they fell short. Our church has it. Sometimes we fall short. But let me conclude with looking and unpacking a little bit what it says in verse 9, because it's really, in a sense, a summary. Because verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. And by Him you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our fellowship is rooted in God's faithfulness. That's what we're saying this morning. It is God's faithfulness that we rest in. It's God's faithfulness that brings us into fellowship with one another. It's God's faithfulness that we need to bring us home. And this is ironic because in the passages that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, especially next week, this fellowship, you recognize we're called into fellowship. What do we read in the very next verses? They couldn't get along with one another. They're in fellowship and they all have their own little parties. It's like partisanship in the church. But nevertheless, we're called into fellowship. Now, like grace is a Sunday school word, fellowship is a Sunday school word. So we have to think about what it means. Fellowship doesn't mean size or hall. It doesn't mean, I started to say average coffee, but Dana is sitting here, so I'm going to say it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't mean glorious coffee on a Sunday morning. It doesn't mean men's fellowship where we cook burgers. We need to have another one of those pretty soon. As good as those things are, and they are good, they're wonderful. Fellowship in a biblical sense is so much more significant. Fellowship, when you read about it in the Bible, is genuine communal connection. It's, it's genuine. It, it's translated in various ways. It's translated as partnership. It's translated as sharing in. Some people understand it to be true community. Uh, one uh, very good commentator prefers a technical term, covenant participation. But the truth is, it is, it is the one another's lived out in life to where we are genuinely part of one another's lives. It's communal connection. This is fellowship. And it says here, that our fellowship is rooted in God's faithfulness. He has called us into this. This is the outcome of God's grace in calling us. Now, can I just press in for a moment and tell you that if you are trying to live your life as an individualistic, isolated believer, you are missing the very fundamental purpose of God saving you. He saved you, and according to this verse, He is, through His faithfulness, calling you into fellowship with His Son. And if He calls you into fellowship with His Son, what we're going to find is there's also fellowship with one another. 
This is the outcome of God's grace, His calling us. It's union with Christ under His Lordship, and it's relational connection with one another. It's the, one author said, the heart of the gospel and the heart of God's electing purpose. And if you wonder sometimes why your life is lacking in purpose, could it be that you've missed the very purpose that God has saved you for? He saved you to be in relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And what that looks like is for meaningful relationship in the body of Christ, the church. And so this means at least two things. On a horizontal plane, it means the challenges to our own individualism. Church is not 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. We don't do church. We are the church. It's surely not building, as Calvary Chapel is thankful for this week. They are still the church. And we should remember that as well. As much as we're appreciative of our facilities, the facilities are not the church. We are the church. We are in relation with one another. And we are not isolated. We are part of the local body. And as Dave told us last week, this body is part of the universal church. And as this text shows us, all of that is linked in fellowship with God the Son. And that brings us Moving from a horizontal plane, it moves us onto a vertical plane because not only is the fellowship with one another, but it's fellowship with Jesus under his lordship. That's communal connection with Jesus himself. Now, whether you feel that experientially in the gospel, it is the reality of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. And therefore, we share with him. We share communally. We are connected with Jesus. We share in his image, the New Testament says. We are a fellow heir with him. He's our older brother, the New Testament says. We will share in eternal glory with him. Remember the end of the book of Revelation? This is our promise. And we will also share in his suffering. Oh. Didn't realize I was signing up for that one. We want the good stuff, but part of the good stuff is recognizing that before the crown, there's a cross, and that our partnership with Jesus is not only the glorious promises of the future, and it's not only the wonderful reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives right now, but it's also the reality that if we're really going to fellowship with Jesus, we're going to walk through trouble because of him. The truth is, all of this grace to the church, it's all about Jesus. These verses, in just these verses this morning, verses 4 through 9, five times you see the name of Jesus. Did you notice that when we read it? Five times Jesus or Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus is mentioned. And in verses 1 through 9, six times he is called Lord. He is called Master. Why does that matter? Because the fundamental problem of the Corinth church, even though they had all of these blessings of grace, is that they had decided they were their own God. They were living in radical individualism. They were using the gifts to satisfy themselves, not to serve one another. They were making all of their decisions based on the flesh. And over and over again, as we work through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see this tendency for us to make decisions based on individual preferences as opposed to recognizing that we are connected to one another, but most of all, we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Six times in these first nine verses, he is called our Lord. That's what it means to be called into fellowship with him. It means to crucify our self-centeredness and to be willing to walk with him no matter what. 
And the reality is that our fellowship, our communal connection with Jesus, it's the way that he declares us guiltless. You remember that? Because there's this great exchange. My sinfulness is laid upon Christ on the cross. His righteousness is credited to me. This great exchange to where now as God sees me, even though we know, and the book of 1 Corinthians proves it, we still fail and we still struggle with sin and we still struggle with the flesh. But God the Father sees us as spotless and guiltless as Jesus Christ. And that's the glory and the wonder of the gospel. And listen carefully to me, friends. If there's never been a time in your life when you've acknowledged your own guilt and sin, then you will, and you die in that state, there will come a time when you will face God and you will not be guiltless in His sight, but you will be carrying all of your own guilt and you will be eternally separated from Him. The glory of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God is willing to look on you as though he's looking on his son. This is how we are guiltless, because we have fellowship with him. We are communally connected to him. We are one with him. And what we'll see over and over again is that we are in Christ. Not outside of him, we are in him. and We are accepted in him. And that's the reason One of the most stunning statements of the New Testament is in Romans chapter 8, the first verse, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. End of the verse. Regardless of what your translation says. Period. There is no condemnation. How can that be? Because there's no condemnation in Jesus. And we are called into fellowship with Him, and that should make a difference in the way we live. We just came out of the Christmas season, and there's a new Christmas song. We haven't done it here, but there's a new Christmas song called, O Come All You Unfaithful. And it's a song that celebrates the fact that though we in ourselves are unworthy, we're invited to come and worship. And one of my acquaintances in his church, he commented how on one Sunday it was so glorious because they sang both, O Come All You Faithful. And they also sang, O come all you unfaithful, because the mystery of the gospel is that at the very same time we sing both songs. We are unfaithful in our sinfulness, but we know we are counted faithful in Jesus Christ. And that's what the incarnation was about. And that's what his crucifixion was about and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven as our older brother. And that's what the church is about. That we who are unfaithful are nevertheless counted faithful. And God's faithfulness is the ground, not our own faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the ground of our fellowship. Aren't you glad that verse 9, look at it one more time in your Bibles. Aren't you glad that verse 9 doesn't read, God is faithful, but by your own faithfulness he's called you into fellowship with his son. Aren't you glad it doesn't read that way? It's God's faithfulness. Our fellowship is rooted in the faithfulness of our God. Here's your takeaway this morning. Being the body of Christ is all about Jesus. You say, well, that's awful simplistic. We'll go back and look at the text. It says in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of whom? Christ Jesus. Verse 2 
to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. At the end of the verse, it says, to everyone who, who calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? Verse 4, Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Christ. Verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is it too simplistic to say that the church at Corinth had forgotten that it was all about Jesus? And they thought it was all about themselves? You see, if you're unhappy with your church, a whole lot of times when you're unhappy with your church, it's because you've forgotten that the church is not about you anyway. It's about Jesus. Now, if your church is not about Jesus, it might be time to find another church. But for the church to be the church, for us to be the body of Christ, what we're going to find is it's all about Jesus. We are Jesus' people. May God give us that strength and reminder this week. Let's pray together. Father, speak to our hearts about these crucial issues. Because they really are issues of life and death. They're issues of eternity. Some perhaps are here in this room or perhaps online and they've never in a real and personal way put their hope and faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So they will face the day of judgment bearing their own guilt, not guiltless, but filled with guilt, born in Adam's sin, but willfully choosing sin themselves. What a terrifying, terrifying place to be. We pray that you would sober them this morning, that you would give them gifts of faith and repentance, that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, we pray for our church as we work our way into this glorious New Testament book with so much practical instruction. As we go week by week and month by month, may you mold us into an ever more faithful representation of Jesus because we are the body of Christ. Help us be people who love one another more deeply. Help us be people who hold to the truth more passionately. Help us be people who love our community with sacrificial love. Help us be Jesus because that's what being the body of Christ is about. Do this work by your grace as we've seen this morning. It is all a result of your grace. And we will thank you and we will give you glory. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.